Welcome to A Thrivable Future, the podcast covering all things to do with sustainability, thrivability, and the important policy changes happening around the world. Hi, I'm Rebecca from The Thrive Project, the not-for-profit tech and research forum. I'll be your host as we talk with our experts and special guests about all the thrivability matters affecting the world today. This week, I'm pleased to welcome Clara Williams-Rolden, co-author of Quitting Plastic. Clara has been slowly quitting plastic for over 10 years. She works as the Impact and Education Director at Documentary Australia and previously as a Policy and Legislation Advisor in New South Wales Parliament. In these roles, she's seen firsthand the power of storytelling to drive meaningful action and change. Quitting Plastic is her first book, co-authored with her mother, Louise Williams. Welcome, Clara, and thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. So my first question to you is, why plastic? Why was that the thing that you chose to focus on? It's a good question. And I think it's one of those things, I mean, I started quitting plastic as a teenager. And I think we've all been there when you're a teenager and you sometimes just lock on to something and you get really, really obsessed with it. I was lucky to grow up in a house that was pretty, I guess, focused on sustainability in many different ways. My parents were always kind of, you know, committed to walking lightly on this earth. But there was, I suppose, a bit of a disconnect between the kind of more big ticket items when it came to like, for example, switching to renewable energy or, you know, like reducing our meat intake, for example, compared to the amount of waste we were generating as a household. And it was something we hadn't really noticed just because plastic was so you know, normal, particularly, you know, when I was growing up as a kid in the 90s and the 2000s. And I actually came to Quitting Plastic through a total vanity project. I was trying to grow my hair super long as a teenager and I kind of ended up in different parts of the internet, uh, lots of message boards, long hair communities where people were really espousing kind of more natural ways of caring for your hair. But a lot of the people there were there for a much less vain reason than me. And they were trying down to cut down on their plastic use. And okay. I think, yeah, so it was one of those things once I kind of realized how much plastic was just in the bathroom, in the kitchen, everywhere. You That's kind of- uh, the silicone in um, a lot of like conditioners and things like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just like, oh my God, like the plastic bottles, which I hadn't even thought yeah, about before, yeah. you know? <laughs> and then I think once my eyes were open to it, it was just hard to ignore. So I've been slowly trying to divest myself of it since then. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really big challenge, especially because our society at the moment, we don't have the infrastructure set up to support mm like reusing containers you can't just go to the stores with your own bottle and go all right can I just fill this up with shampoo yeah you have to buy what's there so how do you approach that I think it's an interesting thing because we are almost in a time of flux when it comes to that infrastructure increasingly particularly if you live in a big city you can access some of those bulk stores where you can just turn up with your own container which is really fantastic but yeah I mean a lot of it to be honest is workarounds like there's so many things where there aren't any alternatives and so picking the good enough option as much as possible so for example in the supermarket picking the pasta which comes in cardboard with only a small plastic square window showing it rather than the whole plastic just making I guess those practical easy swaps I think the other really interesting thing is People often, I guess, doubt their power as consumers, but you can vote every day with your wallet pretty much in terms of the products you buy. 
but you can also go ahead and email major supermarkets or the brands you like and say, hey, what are you doing about making your packaging more sustainable? Because increasingly a lot of businesses and big businesses are identifying plastic as a significant threat to their to their operations now and into the future. And do you think that there's a push to, to qualify plastic as that in existential threat because it is, you know, the microplastics problem is is building up and we're mm-hmm. all eating it. Do you think that, that we'll see that become like an, an environmental measurement that, that businesses will have to pay attention to? I mean, I hope so. And I think <laughs> a lot of businesses are kind of already taking it into account just as a bit of an economic threat because they're not seeing it being viable for business as usual to continue because it's just not acceptable to consumers. That's why you see, you know, a lot of greenwashing as well. But Uh, it does, I guess that kind of reflects the pressure that's on a lot of manufacturers and big business out there to try and address this problem because you can't escape it. And I think there is a really high awareness now. Does your book cover any of the greenwashing and, and how to detect it? It does. We have a section in the book towards the end, which talks about the different labeling, particularly on different types of plastic bags, (laughs) because I think that's where a lot of it happens to kind of figure out the difference between degradable, biodegradable and compostable and just different things to look out for. So yeah, if you are looking for a plastic bag alternative, do try and opt for the one that says compostable, the ones that say degradable and even sometimes biodegradable often are just breaking down into microplastics and they're not, right. yeah, they're not going to be made from corn or be made from sugar or anything organic like that, which can fully decompose. And similarly, you know, when you're looking at things to be aware that you know, whether it says it's actually recyclable itself as a plastic or whether it's made from recycled plastic, that's two which get very um, interchangeably used and something which being is made better. Definitely recycled plastic because that's it's creating demand for plastics to actually be recycled because only less than 10% of all plastic produced worldwide is actually recycled, which is pretty devastating. So the more that you buy products made from recycled plastic, the more demand there is for yeah, waste management to actually pull that out and turn it into something new. Yep. And plastic being recyclable, just because it is, doesn't mean it will be recycled. So with the, the reusable shopping bags, does that mean that we should not be just getting the ones that they provide at Coles, for example? Like, do we need to take a closer look as consumers? Yeah, I mean, with reusable bags, it's less of an issue if you're going to actually be reusing them long term. It's just when you see plastic bag alternatives out there, which are meant to be disposable, which are often branded quite green, but they might actually just be something which is a bit greenwashed. It is tricky, though, I have to say, with like reusable bags, you see the argument a lot of the time like, oh, but it takes so much more energy to make a bag like this. So it might have a bigger carbon footprint than one plastic bag. But the reality is you will use that bag hopefully for years and years and years. So the kind of, you know, carbon per use will be really, really small, whereas the average lifespan of a plastic shopping bag is seven minutes. So it's it's all about how you're using it. Definitely. And I think, you know, something we go into in the book is the history of plastic and how it became so ubiquitous in our society. And it's because it's 
like actually a really incredible material. You know, it's so safe. It's so malleable. It's so easy to manufacture. It's so much lighter than something like glass or metal to ship things in. Yeah. When it's used in the right circumstances, it can be revolutionary, like the way that we see it used in medicine. The trouble is, though, that we're using a material that was originally, you know, designed to be really, really durable, like glad wrap, for example, was originally designed to be sprayed on the front of jet fighter planes in World War II as a protective covering. Okay. (laughs) We're using something which was made to be really durable as something disposable. And that's kind of where the problem emerges. So it's it's not so much plastic itself as a material as just the fact that we use it and throw it away and it builds up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are your thoughts on things like paper straws and big companies who go, okay, we'll switch to this? Oh, yeah, it is a tricky one because in terms of the ongoing impact on the environment, paper straws are better in terms of like they break down, they're not going to choke a seagull to death. It does create increased pressure, obviously, on wood and the need to make more paper. I think there's also the question of like, do you need a straw for that? That's, yeah. That's kind of the question I ask. Like, you know, for most drinks that you have a straw in, I'd say most of the time you could probably go without. And I think that's the other thing that we've got to kind of learn is like you can just drink straight from the cup. I once went to a really interesting masterclass with someone who was like a champion gin distiller And their thing about straws was like, look, would you ever drink a really beautiful glass of wine with a straw? No, of course you wouldn't. If you do need a straw, I mean, at home I have metal straws. Exactly. And I think there are definitely, you know, lots of drinks that you do need straws for, um, but you can get reusable bamboo ones, metal ones. Ideally, if it's not disposable and it's reusable, it's always going to be better. I suppose that that hits at the the fundamental aspect of changing behaviours rather than changing the products that we use Mm. and still having that disposable mindset. Mm -hmm. We're going, we need to start not consuming so much, which of course, are you familiar with the sustainable development goals? Yeah. So number 12 is all about sustainable consumption and production. Do you think that quitting plastic is enough or do we need to do more to make sure that our consumption is sustainable? I think we definitely need to do more to make sure our consumption is sustainable. But I also think that it doesn't lie just with the individual, that responsibility, because, you know, the reality is, is we exist in these big, complicated systems, which often really want us to consume. And so Mm -hmm. shifting that paradigm is really essential. And you can start it at home and you can start it almost like in your own mind before you even have those actions, which is definitely where a lot of it needs to start. Like just with remembering to bring your reusable bags and your keep cup and things like that. That said though, yeah, that big systems change is a huge part of the puzzle. And I think the really interesting thing, as I said previously, has been to see how much Firstly, that there's just been this explosion in kind of like green products, which are designed to be bought once and used for a really, really long time and how much value people see in that, but also in the desire for a lot of companies to be seen as responsible, ethical, sustainable in this space. So putting the pressure on when you can, even if it is just like a quick email to your local supermarket saying, 
hey, I noticed that you've still got plastic bags in your produce aisle. Have you considered replacing them with compostable? So it's yeah. them out of the sand. That's that's a very good point. With the fruit aisles and things mm-hmm. like that, I see fruit wrapped in plastic or mini plastic bags, and that tends to receive a lot of criticism from people mm-hmm. as well. But I'm also aware that it does help preserve the fruit from mm. going off so that it's it reduces food waste. What kind of balance uh, should we be aiming for when looking at this? It depends, I guess, on your access to fresh produce and to a lot of different food. One of the most interesting things with writing the book was learning about all the different types of food packaging, which sounds super boring, but it is like incredible science. Like you kind of think it's just a plastic bag with a bit of air in it. But a lot of them have specific atmospheric packaging. So it's not just like kind of the normal oxygen and air composition that we breathe. It's like a specific combination of things which will keep that food fresher for longer. Yeah. So it is a bit of a complicated balance, particularly if you're someone who knows I can only shop once every two weeks and I need food that's going to last a long time. Yeah. And I think maybe it's just a matter of deciding for yourself what are the things that you can't compromise on and what are the things that you're like okay I'm going to be able to buy that naked or switch to paper packaging because it's not something I need to keep in my fridge for a really long time I think there are some easy switches particularly with like shelf stable stuff out there like flour just making sure you buy it in paper yeah of course yeah plastic same with sugar easy yeah yeah getting canned beans rather than beans in a packet making those kinds of choices, then it can maybe hopefully even out some of the plastic consumption where you're thinking, oh, I'm going to actually buy this thing with like the vacuum seal because I'm not going to be able to shop for quite a while. That's completely fair. It's a a nice uh, approach to take. With plastic as well, I think a lot of the general public, they aren't aware why they need to stop plastic use, why it's so bad Mm -hmm. and why it's not enough to just put their plastic in the recycling bin. Mm-hmm. Could you expand on that a little bit for those people who just don't know why it's so bad? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it comes down to sheer volume at the end of the day. As I mentioned, unfortunately, even though we do have plastic recycling options, only about 9% of all plastic worldwide is ever recycled. The rest of it ends up either incinerated, which is very polluting to the environment, or in landfill. So if you think about all the plastic that has ever, ever been produced, the vast majority of that is still on this earth. And for us to keep adding to that every single year is really overwhelming. And I think perhaps one of the statistics people may have heard, by 2050, they are predicting that there's going to be more plastic in our oceans than there are fish. And that's... Pretty overwhelming. A huge amount. (laughs) It's a huge amount. Like the ocean is incredibly vast. And in just not even really two generations, we've managed to fill it up with as many fish as there are. Right. Yeah. And as I said previously, you know, it's just like the incredibly short life of most plastics. Like for most things you'd buy, you'd never think it was okay that it only has seven minutes with you before it's put in the bin. But that is the reality for most plastics. So on the production side, does your Mm. book also contain information about products that use a lot of plastic in its production cycle? Um, No, not so much. We're more focusing, I guess, on products which come packaged in plastic 
unfortunately it's just one of those things which is quite hard to get information on Uh, (laughs) yeah when it comes to I guess diving deep into the transparency of how things are produced I think we've seen like great strides in that in the fashion industry in terms of you know opening up transparency in terms of working conditions and how water use and like kind of other sustainability measures but because I guess plastic is just so widely widely used um, across so many different industries it is difficult to hone in on where the majority of it is happening in terms of production. What about with your own book what steps have you taken to minimize the plastic in in that production? Yeah so in the book what we do is we've tried to make it I guess as practical as possible so each chapter is a different room of the house and we have strategies to tackle common plastics and yeah like the kitchen the bathroom oh sorry I I actually meant the actual production the physical production of your book itself oh the physical production of the book itself. yeah okay sorry no I misunderstood (laughs) no no that's a good question so actually this was a long conversation we had with our publisher most books you know are, are usually printed and their cover is kind of shiny and that's because it's got a plastic coating on it so ours doesn't have that and it's also printed on sustainable paper and the ink is like biodegradable and non-toxic so there's no plastic in the production of the book itself. Was that hard to to wrangle with your um, agent and and your publisher? Alan and Unwin were super duper supportive of it and they were also very cognizant like you can't talk the talk and not walk the walk when it comes to publishing a book like this. Is this one of those things you have to consider though because the the cover does you know, suffer a lot more wear and tear than books that have a plastic cover covering yes. on their coating. But that's okay. I just figure it means they're being well used. That's a true point. Yeah, it is kind of hard because you want things that are durable at the same time as being, right? yeah. But I have seen like a, a few years back, I remember seeing a book It was getting a lot of bad publicity because it was about plastic use and mm-hmm. all of the individual books were wrapped in plastic when you oh. bought them and it was just, yeah, it was terrible marketing. Yeah, that's, that's a big oversight on their part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's why I was curious about if you'd taken steps there. Now, you've also, I know that you've previously worked as a policy advisor in New South Wales. What mm-hmm. can you tell me about that experience? Um, it was an interesting one. And I think something interesting about working in politics is, I guess, seeing how the sausage is made when it comes yeah. to a lot of policy decisions. And I think the most powerful thing in many ways is to see that politicians are also people and they are 100% affected by the stories that they hear every day. And it was really, I guess, heartening in some ways, as much as, you know, a lot of politics is kind of gross and depressing at times, um, to see how individual stories could cut through. And so, for example, in New South Wales, before they brought through legislation around plastic bags here, it was really driven by a young girl who, terrible, I've forgotten her name now, but who went out there and just got tens of thousands of signatures to support banning the bag. Wow. And that was really, you know, a critical thing which helped tip the New South Wales government into supporting that legislation to ban plastic bags. But it's something I'd say that as an individual, you don't quite realise how much power you do hold, particularly when it is like sometimes it probably seems like you're shouting into the void when you're... Um, writing to your elected representatives but 
at the end of the day, they are accountable to you. And I really would encourage you to not feel like they're just going to ignore your email or ignore your phone call because they won't. You'll get an answer, even if it takes a long time. And there is a lot of power in saying your piece when it comes to waste and any other issues that you're really passionate about. I think that's something that does come up a lot in politics that I see in Australia, that people feel like their voices aren't listened to, that the government just does what it's going to do with no Mm. kind of accountability. So I think that that's a, a really important message for people is to go, you can actually talk to your your local councillors and representatives and they will listen to you. So yeah. that that's a huge thing. And so now you're currently working with Documentary Australia. What What is your approach to get through to people who don't want to think about the big problems like climate change? Oh, it's a really difficult <laughs> problem. <laughs> but something I've learned working at Documentary Australia and seeing like so many incredible documentaries is that really, again, like that power of storytelling just can't be underestimated. And it won't necessarily be, you know, a kind of a campaign film. It won't be necessarily like, you know, Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. But there's always going to be a story that resonates with someone And it's just about finding a way to get your story in front of that audience. And I guess ultimately that comes down to community, you know, like building out those connections with people, you know, and orgs and groups that care about the things that you care about. You can often put a really sceptical person in front of a documentary and they'll come out with their mind completely changed, which is pretty amazing. But as you say, the hard thing is getting them there in the first place. Yes, yeah, so. yeah, that can be hard. Do you think that people respond more to smaller stories, like stories that they can comprehend rather than big picture ones? Definitely. And there's been a lot of studies in terms of like the psychology around things like climate change. And it is really difficult for us to contemplate big changes to our environment. Yeah. I read that, you know, when you think about your future self, it doesn't have the same emotional resonance as it does thinking about you in the present. It kind of is like something that's happening to someone, you know, tangentially, and you can't access that emotional (laughs) urgency. So I think, yeah, putting a personal story on it and being able to understand it through that personal lens is definitely key. The other thing is, to be honest, having people that you trust bring it to you We live in an environment where it's really difficult to know what news to trust and what sources to trust. So I think you'd be surprised at how much influence you can have as an individual. So start with basically your own friends and neighbours and family, like people you know, and talk to them about your experiences and reasons, I guess. Definitely. And I think that's with quitting plastic, just bringing a keep cup to coffee with your friends has a big impact and being able to say like, oh yeah, actually, you know, I've decided that it's just a really easy way for me to help the environment and actually it keeps my coffee warm. So if you guys want to grab one too, like I'd really encourage that. That's a a really great approach because it's like you're doing a behavior change that might inspire further behavior change in your social group. And you kind of help change the status quo there, right? Like that's the the hard thing for most people with behavior changes. They don't want to be doing something different to the rest of the community. And that's totally yeah. understandable. That's hardwired in us. So if you find it easy to make some of those swaps, do it and be the model for that behavior because it'll really empower people around you. 
Have you encountered people who are maybe more resistant, like feeling like it's not their responsibility, like what I do doesn't make that big of a difference, sort of talking about bigger companies and their pollution and and things like that? Yeah, definitely. Like, as we said before, you know, there's the individual level of this and then there's the huge structural issue. And as it is with most things out there in the world, there are definitely people who say like, oh, why bother doing that? And that's... I don't know. I find it just to be a bit of a defeatist attitude, to be honest. Right. And I think it's one of those things where you don't have to change those people's minds, but you can say like, okay, that's fine that you believe that, but I prefer to kind of, you know, put my my money where my mouth is and do these things every day if I'm going to stand up there and advocate for change. I suppose Mm -hmm. it's also a bit about hope as well because if you have that defeatist attitude then you just think Mm. well the world's going to end in you know climate change everything dying and there's nothing I can do about it and it's very doom and gloom but if Mm. you have hope because we do know that it's possible to change it so yeah having hope and and allows you I think to make that change yourself and to advocate it for others Definitely. And I think, you know, one example we often talk about when we're talking about the power of an individual to inspire others is in India on Varanasi Beach. One person just started trying to clean up that beach. It was one of the most polluted beaches pretty much anywhere because many, many rivers exited at that beach and there was loads of plastic waste dumped. And just this one person picking up rubbish every day, then connecting with other people. There was a huge movement. They actually got excavators onto the beach to get all the plastic out of the sand. Wow. They cleaned the beach. More waste kept coming. So they realized they needed to go up the rivers and clean up the rivers. And several years later, the beach was clean. And for the first time, turtles returned there for the first wow. time in like 50 years. Not only has it cleaned up the beach, which is nice for us, but it's yeah. made it a spot that can regenerate biodiversity and and animal life, which is also absolutely necessary. Completely. And like you said, there is hope. It's not lost. We can do stuff still. We have targets and we still Mm -hmm. have the chance to meet them. We just need to make sure that we are actually working towards them and and Mm -hmm. not sort of letting it slide. (laughs) So what other kinds of plastics, like, do you tackle just the the sort of disposable ones in your mm-hmm. book? Do you have plans to write a, a sequel talking about plastic inside products or in the production cycle? Is that a step you want to take in the future? Yeah, so the book really mainly tackles single-use plastics and that is a lot of kind of plastic packaging that comes with many, many things in the home. And as I said before, it kind of goes room by room. We also have difficulty ratings of how hard it is to right. get rid of that plastic Because some things are super easy, which is very heartening as you start out on your journey. Some things are much more difficult. What's the hardest thing that you had to get rid of? Oh, I'm trying to think. There are, look, there's a lot of foods which come always in plastic packaging, which are really difficult unless you stop eating those foods, like berries, for example. Right. Pretty much impossible to get without plastic unless you have like an amazing farmer's market near you and even then because they're so delicate they're really yeah. hard to transport that is quite a tricky is the option one. there just to grow your own or is there definitely <laughs> yes depending on where you live where you um, are yeah yes I have to say I haven't had much success growing strawberries on my balcony they tend to get eaten oh. before I get to eat them <laughs> but 
That said, the tomatoes sprouted this year and they've done pretty well. So that's been good. There are some definitely some trickier things. And obviously some of the swaps are not going to be completely the same experience. Mm -hmm. So for example, shampoo and conditioner bars are quite different to use than liquid shampoo and conditioner. Yeah, that would be. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and that can be a bit of an adjustment period as well. They're fantastic. I really recommend them. But I also understand if you're someone who has a lot of hair, uh, that can be a really difficult shift to make. So, Is that also change like different people with different hair types as well often have different needs in their products? So do you think that that's something that people will have to consider as well? Like they go, well, I can use this, but it does this to my hair. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Which is why, as you were saying, like, you know, we really want actually like, you know, the big companies and this is starting to happen. Um, I'm trying to remember which company it is. It escapes me, but they've got a program called The Loop and they basically have all their most popular products. I think it's Procter & Gamble, actually, um, now in reusable packaging in some cities. And wow. It's kind of like a milkman style model where, you know, you'll get, for example, your Colgate toothpaste in a reusable tube. And when you're done with it, you put all the empty containers in a in a little bag to be collected and taken back to the factory to be refilled. Nice. That's a, a really great. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's actually coming to Sydney soon. They started out trialing it in New York in, I think, 2020. Do you think that the lockdown maybe had an impact on that? Because everyone was staying at home, they weren't going out shopping and Yeah, <laughs> I think I think the pandemic has been very difficult for cutting down plastic. Um, just because we've seen a real resurgence in single items being packaged for hygiene reasons, whereas they may have just been like, you know, bread, for example, at a supermarket, which you may have been able to get out of like a big bread basket and put into a paper bag it's all now in individual packaging because of concerns around hygiene with covid um and yeah, kind of, of course a reversion to that obviously we've seen an increase in medical waste with the kind of the masks the masks um, yeah yes <laughs> which is a really tricky one i have to say because something we talk about in the book very much is how incredible plastic has been for medicine and how that's the space where you actually need a durable disposable product. So as much as possible, if we can not use plastic where we don't need it, it kind of allows us to use it in this medical space where it is really, really necessary. Yeah. I have seen things like disposable plastic gloves that are made from biodegradable material. So are we, are we taking steps in the right direction in that area? Or Definitely. Also, like, honestly, a lot of disposable gloves are made out of latex, which is rubber, which is biodegradable. So oh, right already a great thing it'll be an adjustment period just like kind of you know this has been a big shock to the system the the pandemic (laughs) there'll be an adjustment as we come out of it and hopefully go back to those good habits that were actually really starting to be established in terms of reducing plastic do you think that that's going to be something that we have to really consider as well moving forward is like maintaining the hygiene of things as well as trying to be environmentally friendly and look I'm not a doctor so I (laughs) I don't want to give advice uh specifically on this but I think you know obviously hygiene is always a concern but if you are living in the first world you're probably pretty lucky in that it's not a major major concern I think more it's going to be 
finding that match, I guess, between business and consumer wants and needs. So, for example, I know a lot of coffee shops stopped taking keep cups during various lockdowns because there were concerns about hygiene and, you know, passing a cup to someone and then passing a cup back. And I'm just really hopeful that people can re-establish their habits in terms of bringing their keep up, but also that business is willing to meet them halfway now that we know that there's not so much risk with disease being transferred by a touch um, yeah. when it comes to COVID. I mean, they could also do things like wear gloves and, and stuff like that. Like there are also workarounds that you could take to... Definitely. I mean, we've got hand sanitizer everywhere now. So Yeah, exactly. Know. So hopefully we'll be looking in the, in the future more business accepting that reusable mm-hmm. approach and, and things like, do you think restaurants will see um, similar things like, you know, you used to get like little plastic recycling takeaway. takeaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that that will move into people being able to bring in their own dishes? Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, there's quite a few restaurants around me who will happily take your containers if you bring them to have takeaway And I think that's the thing where you've actually just got to try yourself as an individual, bring your containers along. I'm sure we've all got stacks of legacy plastic that we've collected along the way. Mm -hmm. And if you've got those takeaway containers, bring them to your local Thai or Indian place and just say, would you mind popping it in here? Because they're usually pretty happy to do it, I've found. So just basically just try it and and see what you can do because they're going to be willing to accommodate, even if it's unusual. Yeah, exactly. Plus, it's a benefit to them. They don't have to, you know, spend money buying more plastic containers to give away for free. That's true. That's true. It, it um, definitely cuts down on their costs as well. So that's going to be something that businesses can consider going forward as well as going, well, we don't have to fork out, even though plastic is cheap. Do you think that uh, if we were to consider like taxing plastic use or single-use plastic use, Mm. that that would also have a significant impact on business use of it? Yeah, definitely. And I think we just need to look at countries that have priced plastic bags, as, you know, now a lot of states and territories in Australia have done, Mm -hmm. and it has such a huge impact on consumer behaviour. I think the statistics, particularly from Ireland, when they introduced 10 cent costs of a plastic bag, it was suddenly like a 90% drop in plastic bag use at supermarkets because people didn't want to pay for it, even though that's not very much money. Just that idea of, you know, it's free of money costs, but it's not free of consequences for the planet and and everyone so I think that that's good to get away from that idea of it's free because <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah exactly factor in the the kind of long-term costs of it not just the actual cost of buying it yeah mm-hmm. exactly um, I think that that's something that generally in society we need to like consider more is those those costs those social and environmental costs to our mm-hmm. habits Okay. Well, I think that's all I had for you in terms of questions. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure to have you here. And I, when, when is your book out, by the way? It's out, is now. out now. Yeah. Excellent. So you just have to Google it. Quitting Plastic, Clara Williams, Roldan. The publisher is Alan and Unwin. Um, yeah, you can buy it at most book retailers online. Awesome. I will have to check it out. Wonderful. And <laughs> thank you for being a guest. <laughs>